All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. And I think a good place to begin is the UK and some of the statements coming out of the UK. Perhaps we can talk about the US and uh, the statements coming out of the US since it was announced that Ukraine would not be, Ukraine aid would not be included in uh, in this stopgap resolution. And we have some crazy statements out of the US. And then maybe we could talk about what's actually going on in <laughs> the moment on the front line. So maybe we're doing things a bit in reverse this time. We, we usually start with what's going on on the front lines, but I really want to get to the, the crazy stomp, the crazy comments coming out of the UK and the US. So let's begin with the UK. Absolutely. Well, I think things are becoming increasingly unhinged here. We've had, firstly, a, a, a very bizarre interview uh, with War on the Rocks by um, Admiral Radigan, who is our um, you know, chief of staff, if you like. He's the head of the British military. All is going well. The Russians are on the brink of collapse. Um, all we need to do is keep going. And no, not just that the Russians are on the brink of collapse, but the military in Russia is on the brink of collapse and the whole country is apparently on the brink of collapse. I'm summarising uh, hugely, but in essence, that is what he said. Um, then we had this extraordinary statement from Grant Shapps, who is our new defence secretary. And he comes out and he says um, that Britain is now seriously thinking, deploying troops to Ukraine itself on training missions there. And that British ships, British, the British military might play a role in escorting Ukrainian grain ships. So that would imply some level of direct involvement by Britain in the war. Within hours, the Russians responded, firstly, with a strong message on his telegram channel from Dmitry Medvedev, making it absolutely clear that as far as the Russians are concerned, any British troops in Ukraine are targets. The Russians will come after them. And, of course, um, Medvedev also spoke about, you know, the fact that the whole situation was becoming dangerous and that there were some crazy people in the West. He used a very strong word. He called them morons, in fact, were dragging the world towards World War Three. That was what Medvedev said. And then a few hours later, we got a comment. We got a, a major backtrack from our prime minister, Rishi Sunak. He then came out and said, well, actually, that's not what we're going to do. What Grant Shapp says has been misunderstood. He wasn't talking about sending troops to Ukraine now. He means after the war. He doesn't really explain the comments about the grain ships and escorting the grain ships or anything like that. But it's clearly a major backtrack. And then just a few hours after this, we get an equally crazed, in fact, completely unhinged article in the Daily Telegraph from the former British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. Again, Ukraine is on the brink of victory. The Russians have suffered staggering losses. Two and a half thousand tanks have been destroyed. Thousands of machines are destroyed. Their army is on the brink of collapse. The country is on the brink of collapse. What we must do is give Ukraine everything Ukraine wants, everything Zelensky wants. 
he's disclosed, by the way, independently, that he was pressing Sunak to give Ukraine another $2 billion of aid, uh, £2 billion of aid, my correction. Uh, um, so he was wanted to get Ukraine to be provided with even more aid. Oh, and by the way, he slipped out the fact over the course of this article that Ukraine's, um, the average age of Ukrainian soldiers is now above 40. He says this is all because President Zelensky cares so much about the future of his country that he's not willing to sacrifice all its young people. But he must now do that because Putin is in the, is in the process of mobilizing by stealth the whole of Russia. So everybody, all men, apparently must join the Ukrainian army. Now, I'm going to make a number of conclusions. I think what it shows is that there are some people in Britain who've just completely um, lost it with this war. They wanted to continue. They're very, very concerned and very, very angry about all of this talk about freezes and ceasefires and negotiations and all of these things. They're noticing that the mood is shifting in the United States. They're noticing that the mood is shifting even in Poland. Perhaps they've been rattled by the election in Slovakia. We'll talk about all of that some other time. But anyway, the point is that there's clearly a battle underway within um, the British political leadership between those who want to push for the most extreme solutions, people like Radikin and um, Wallace, and Sunak, perhaps a little bit more connected to reality, is trying to keep things a bit more under restraint. My own view about the Grant Shapps um, comments, by the way, is that he was flying a kite. He was sending up a kite. He was wanting to see how the Russians would react to this, uh, to this proposal to send British troops to Ukraine and how the Russians would react to the suggestion of British troops, in some ways, the British escorting Ukrainian grain ships. And, of course, he also wanted to see how British public opinion would react. And you must understand that the British authorities keep very close track um, on how British opinion moves. I mean, the kind of opinion polls we see published are only, you know, the tip of the iceberg of what goes on. Also, you know, you get letters to newspapers, comments on email, on threads and things. They don't get all published, but they're quickly forwarded to Whitehall. And I'm pretty sure that what happened after the Grant Shapps comments was that there was a massive negative reaction from most of the British population. And Sunak, who's very, very careful, is, is trying to pull back. But we can see that there are others... Ben Wallace and Radikin and people like those who want us to press forward. So it gives you a sense of the kind of debate that's taking place in Britain. And it also shows how completely detached from reality people in Britain, those who advocate further escalation, have become. Yeah, Ben Wallace also uh, brought in a World War II reference. You're starting to see a lot of leaders in uh, in the collective West referencing World War II now, rewriting the the history of World War II and basically making Russia into the villain 
Yeah. That's, that's what they're doing here. Yes. And I think it's just really, it, it, it's interesting to see everyone in the collective West yes. always referencing World War II now when they're talking about Russia and, uh, and the conflict in Ukraine. But, um, you know, we have the neocons in, in Britain and we have the neocons in the U.S., which pretty much um, are in the same state of panic. Yes. Uh, Lindsey Graham, he gave uh, an, an interview. He was on uh, Face the Nation. He said that uh, obviously he's disappointed with the fact that uh, Ukraine didn't get any money in the resolution, the stopgap resolution. But he said that the Senate is preparing 60 or 70 billion yeah. more in aid this uh, this year. And uh, of course, he he told uh, Face the Nation that, look, uh, Ukraine has to win. It has to defeat Russia. Because uh, if it doesn't uh, win and defeat Russia, well, then we've got uh, a problem with China and Taiwan. So I find it very interesting that the narrative has indeed shifted to create this connection, this linkage between the conflict in Ukraine and a possible conflict or escalation in Taiwan. I mean, they've the neocons have 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 connected these two uh, these two issues together now, and um, I, I just would like your thoughts on that. And then, of yeah. course, Biden. Biden, he he said that um, McCarthy, I guess he was, I don't want to say promised, but in Biden's address after the resolution passed, he made it appear as if he spoke to McCarthy on the side and McCarthy signaled to Biden that they're going to get the $24 billion to Ukraine in a separate package. And Biden said, don't worry, we're not going to abandon Ukraine. We're going to uh, Americans. Americans do not worry. Ukrainians don't worry. We're going to make sure that we get the money to you. Rand Paul is providing resistance. J.D. Vance is providing resistance in the Senate. They're saying no more money to Ukraine. But all the neocons are are signaling that a lot more money is going to be provided to Ukraine. Absolutely. Now, I think the thing to understand about what has happened in Congress uh, is that this was entirely a procedural battle. It was about the administration's attempt to tack on financial aid to Ukraine onto another much bigger budget appropriation, which covers the costs of the government going forward and other things. The administration didn't want aid for Ukraine to be set as to, to be voted for a part in a specific Ukraine funding bill. And the reason they don't want to do that is not because they think that a Ukraine funding bill will fail in Congress. There is a majority in Congress, both in the House of Representatives and even more in the Senate, for funding Ukraine. So Ukraine is going to get money. I mean, I think this is something that people need to understand. This, these moves do not block funding for Ukraine. Ukraine is going to continue to get, to get, going to get funding, probably $24 billion, perhaps even more. What the Biden administration wanted to suppress, wanted to conceal from the American people and the world is the fact that opposition to funding this war in Congress is growing. They didn't want the world to see that there's perhaps, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm just plucking figures out of the air now. Perhaps a hundred um, Republicans are going to vote against 
this allocation. They want to preserve the appearance that there is, un that there is unity right across the political class in the United States behind this issue. Because, of course, they do not want it to become an issue in the forthcoming presidential election. So that's what this whole battle was all about. This whole argument in Congress was all about. The tactic failed. From this point on, they'll be putting forward a Ukraine funding bill and it will pass. Now, I'm not I don't think when Lindsey Graham talks about 60 billion dollars, I think he's talking I mean, I don't think it will be that much. More probably, it will be something like $24 billion. But, you know, if $60 billion is what is proposed, there might even be votes for it. It becomes more difficult the more money you propose. But it will pass. So this is an important issue in terms of U.S. domestic politics going forward into 2024, into the election. But it is not important in relation to US support for Ukraine. I think this is a point that I, people need to make, have absolutely clearly understood. So there's going to be a battle. Ukraine is going to get its money. But we're going to see that there will be a significant vote against this in Congress, in, in the House, by Republicans. And a small but growing number of Republican senators. You mentioned J.D. Vance, but there'll be others as well. Um, you know, Rand Paul, obviously. They'll be voting against it too. And the unity, in other words, on this issue of the Uniparty has been shattered. So this is, this is the story of what has happened here. Now, it is really angered people like Lindsey Graham. They are indeed panicking because, of course, it also touches on the control these people used to have over the Republican Party. That is clearly slipping now. The Republican Party is slipping out of their control. And that is disturbing for them. But this is all ultimately about domestic politics. And what do you make of the um, the World War Two narratives, the China, um, Russia, Taiwan, Ukraine linkage? Right. 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 The World War Two narratives and the China, Taiwan linkage. Again, it's very important. But note that this is a specifically an American thing. You get sometimes people like Baerbock weighing in to talk in the same way about China. She calls Xi Jinping a dictator. But basically, if you're talking about Britain, if you're talking about Europe, people in Europe and in Britain are much less interested and worried about China. There is a big, strong, visceral antagonism to Russia. So you can play that up. But there isn't this animus towards, um, um, you know, China in Europe and in Britain in particular that there is to uh, to Russia. So Ben Wallace, Radikin, those sort of people, they are not talking about China at all. But in the United States, again, it is different because the United States now finds itself in a situation where it, the 
neocons have manoeuvred it into getting into an adversarial relationship with China. Um, they've been promoting this idea to the American people that China is the great challenge to the United States, that if China overtakes the United States economically and becomes the number one military power, well, that will be bad for the world, but it will also be bad in some way for the United States. This has gained a certain degree of traction. It's gained traction amongst Republicans in Congress and more widely in the country. So the neocons are saying, look, let's talk less about Russia. Let's talk more about China, because that is a better way to mobilize support for Ukraine. Of course, it's easy for them to do this because it's consistent with their original plan, which was to defeat Russia, break Russia, isolate China. So it's an easy thing for them to argue in the United States, and that is why they're doing it. It is incredibly cynical with respect to Ukraine, because, of course, what they're saying at the same time is that Ukraine is being sacrificed not for its own freedom or for its independence, but as part of some great chess game between the United States and China. So we should not overlook the cynicism of this as well. No, these, these are how psychopaths think. I mean, I was going to say the same thing Absolutely. with the chessboard. It's, it's what we've been saying for a while now with the neocons. Everything is a yeah. big chessboard and... And here they are now talking about how you have to damage Russia in order to deter China. We're starting to hear the, the narrative about the 3% military spend for 50% destruction of the yeah. Russian military. That's gaining a lot of traction as well. They're, they're obviously trying to sell the, the American people uh, a, a package of, of a long war as well as a year and a half of of spending investment success in, in this long war between exactly. China and Russia. And I'm just wondering, can you tie this into the Blinken doctrine? Does this somehow tie into this, absolutely. this war also, between China and Russia? All. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, for Blinken, you know, Blinken is, of course, a neocon, an arch neocon. It is absolutely the fact that China is the great adversary. He said that very, very clearly. But, of course, for him also, as an original neocon, confronting Russia now is part of the greater confrontation with China and, of course, supporting Ukraine or in whatever way one can is also part of that confrontation. And that's where all those World War II metaphors, similes come in, because, of course, we're now in a long war and it's not the kind of it's not just like the Cold War. The Cold War mostly was a time of peace. There wasn't direct fighting between the great powers. There was a very, very ugly war in Vietnam, which played a very big role in politics in the 60s. There was also a very ugly war in Korea right at the start of the Korean War of the Cold War. But overall, the great powers preserved peace with respect to each other. 
and indeed understood and respected each other's proxies. This time it's different. This time this is a much more kinetic, a much more violent confrontation. And of course it is a confrontation that has to be protracted, or so the neocons hope, over a long period of time. So you've got to mobilise people's support for this. And this is where talking about World War II comes. So you talk about World War II, you say that just as happened in World War II, so today we are the good people, we are on the side of virtue and truth. The other side is the enemy that we must defeat. You draw all kinds of false parallels between that war and the struggle that we are in today. And to the best extent that you can, you conflate today's enemy with the enemy that we fought in the Second World War, rewriting history in the process. So this is what is going on. Uh, before you get into the, the discussion with, uh, with what's going on on the front lines, uh, the, the, the fact that they're, they're making Russia out to be the villain in much the same way that uh, that Hitler, that Hitler Germany was the villain in World War II, is it is going to anger the the Russians in a way I I think the the, the collective West will never understand. I, that's my that's my take on it. I mean, it is I can't think of a, a of a more provocative, a more insulting narrative to develop for for Russia than than equating them to. To, to the mustache man and and rewriting and rewriting the the history of of what happened in World War II so that you you erase them from from World War II from from any of the of 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 the victory of World War II you erase them and you don't even erase Russia you somehow hint you imply at the fact that they were the the actual villains in uh, in World War II. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's it's about as sick and perverse as you can get, but they're doing it. You're absolutely correct about this. Anybody who has any knowledge of Russia knows that the Second World War is one of the most important events in shaping modern Russia's political and emotional identity. Every single Russian family has some connection to what happened in the Second World War. I mean, 27 million people died in the Soviet Union, the greater majority of those from within Russia. For the Russians, it is the, f the fact that they were the country that played, made by far the biggest contribution to the defeat of fascism and to the defeat of Germany is absolutely fundamental. It's a core issue of their identity. And of course, they will be furious about this. For them, it will be absolute outrage and the deepest type of sacrilege. And it will be further confirmation that the West is out to get them, that it wants to deny everything about their past, their history, their contributions to uh, um, the world, their positive contributions in the Second World War. It will confirm their belief that the West is implacably hostile to their country, and it will, of course, make them want to continue the war and to in increase, to strengthen their alliance with China and their 
a move towards the global south. It will. This is so badly miscalculated. It is almost beyond understanding. But then, of course, the neocons have never really been very interested in what Russians think. In fact, I would argue they've never really been interested in in that at all because they don't think about Russians as people very much and they don't think about Russian politics, real Russian politics and real Russian opinions very much either. They see it, as they see everything else, as a pawn on the chessboard, but also, in the case of Russia, as a country which many of them viscerally loathe. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Did you catch the speech from Condoleezza Rice? It's it's all over uh, Telegram and Twitter. I think she was speaking to, to an auditorium in Stanford. I'm not quite sure. But uh, she said that she had sat in on, on the meetings with Putin and, and, his, uh, and his team when she was uh, working for the Bush administration. And she actually said that, okay, Putin is an authoritarian, crazy dictator. She said that. But then she said, Batrushev is, uh, is not too intelligent. Shoigu is dumb. And uh, Yerasimov is, uh, is a drunkard. That's pretty much what she said. I mean, I, I, should, I think she actually called Shoigu dumb, stupid. And she said Batrushev is also not that bright. It was, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing from, uh, from Condoleezza Rice, the, one of the people who, who orchestrated the Iraq uh, WMD uh, lie, debacle, crime, whatever you want to call it. Ed worked for George Bush, George W. Bush, and she's calling Putin and his administration dumb. You worked for George W. Bush. I, I mean, and she's a neocon. There you get an idea of what you just said as to how the neocons view the Russians and actually, I'm sure, view the entire world. Well, pretty much. I mean, you know, they, they, they think that they're geniuses and everybody else is um, a fool who can be either lied to, manipulated or, or, or played or whatever. I mean, you know, this is very much their, their outlook. But there it is. I mean, that is how these people are. And, you know, they're not going to change. And it's interesting that the mask dropped to the extent that it does. I, make, I want to make a further point, by the way, that, you know, in the Cold War... Um, the Soviet Union was a closed society. I mean, it, Russians didn't get direct access to what was being said about them in the West. There were the, you know, the Voice of America broadcasts, there was the BBC, but the number of Russians who actually listened to these programmes, it's debatable how many they were, but they were certainly not a critical mass of the population, probably not. Today, it's very different. Today... Russians know immediately. They know at once what people are saying about them. They know about the fact that um, we're now casting doubt on their contribution in the Second World War. Not casting doubt, we're sort of engaging, denying it entirely, you know, erasing it from the narrative, the, the narrative about World War II. Um, they also know what we think of their leaders, what we think of them generally. They see the way they're depicted in Hollywood movies, which are still shown in Russia. Maybe surprise people to learn. So, I mean, you know, this is very different and much more dangerous in some respects than it was during the Cold War. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Let's wrap it up with a summary as to what is going on on the front lines. Well, I'm glad you left it to last because actually there isn't very much going on on the front lines. I mean, I say that I have to take that back immediately in the sense that lots of people are getting killed. Lots of fighting is taking place. Um, um, but if you're actually looking for any big advances by Ukraine, for example, and it's offensive for the moment, they're just not happening. I mean, there's been, if anything, they're starting to lose ground increasingly in, in different places, not just in places like in the north around Kupiansk, where the Russians launched this um, micro-offensive of their own in the summer, and an offensive which might be gearing up. Some people think so. Some people think this offensive is about to, you know, the, the Russians have in the north is about to get a lot more serious. But even in places where Ukraine has been attacking as part of its own offensive, it seems that the Russians are now actually clawing background. So in the area of Rabotino, for example, the village which has been captured by the Ukrainians, I don't know how many times, at least in the media, uh, the Russians are apparently launching counterattacks and they've recovered some ground. In the Vremivka salient area, they're doing the same. In Bakhmut, in and around Bakhmut, they've been doing the same. So it's basically a stable situation on the front lines, but one in which gradually now we're starting to see a shift with the Russians clawing back the initiative and perhaps starting to introduce more reserves. Now, there is this tantalizing um, suggestion that the Ukrainians are thinking of some kind of big operation across the Dnieper, that they're going to try and, this is presumably their large, last ditch effort, that they're going to try and send uh, men in boats across the Dnieper, kind of um, try to break into the Russian defences that way, and that this might happen at the same time as there's a Ukrainian another Ukrainian attempt to recapture the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. The, the Russians have been talking about this a lot. Whether the Ukrainians really are planning that, I, I can't say. But if they are, it seems to me an extremely foolhardy idea. But one way or the other, it would certainly, I think, be by this point, their last throw. Their, their major offensive, the big plan to try to break through on the front lines through, you know, the Surovikin line, all of that up to this point has been a failure. And I noticed that even the Institute for the Study of War, you know, this neocon outfit run by the Kagan uh, Newland family, basically, as far as I can see, even they now seem to be admitting that the Russians are now attacking in more places than the Ukrainians are. At least that was my take from their latest summary. Yeah. Yeah, you're hearing a lot about the ZMPP now as well. It's just... Zaletsky sees this whole thing as, as a movie. Everything yeah. they do, all the decisions they make, we'll, we'll end it on this point. We've said this many times. All the decisions they make are are cinematic in scope. And, and he, he's he's now come back to the seizing of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, right? I mean, that's going to get that's going to get him the money and support that uh, that he needs. 
since the big counteroffensive failed and we can see the damage that that has done. Exactly. That's exactly what it that's exactly what it's all about. I mean, you know, this is he he thinks and he thinks like an like an actor and a film director. He doesn't see war. He's not somebody who understands war well. And I don't think he's interested in war as such. He's more interested in the theatre of the thing than in its substance. And of course, this is a disaster for Ukraine. All right, we'll uh, we'll end it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Duran shop. Ten percent off. Use the code Good Day. Take care. <laughs>